Hello and welcome to Making Tech Better, a fortnightly podcast on how to improve software delivery. I'm Carl Chapman, I go by he, him, and I work as a senior engineer at Maytech who are kindly sponsoring us. This week, I'm talking to Emily Weber. Emily's an independent agile and delivery consultant, conference speaker, and the author of Building Successful Communities of Practice. Hi, Emily. Hi. <laughs> My first question is, who in this industry are you inspired by? So this is such a tough one because <laughs> obviously so many people. There's an interesting thing. So, so one thing to know about me is that I uh, spent six years at art college. I have a master's of, in fine art. Oh, cool. You know, they're like the term steal like an artist. Yeah. I think that kind of like magpie approach applies to the way that I think about things and the way that I put things together. But I will tell you a couple of people. So first is Margaret Heffernan, who's an awesome organizational consultant. And she talks a lot about people and embracing change. She's got some fantastic books that I would really, I mean, I recommend reading them all, particularly Willful Blindness. Oh, what's that about? (laughs) It's about CEOs or others who purposely ignore things. Ah, yeah, okay. (laughs) That could be disastrous. So it's very, very fascinating. Also, I'm really interested in kind of social anthropology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mentioned Robin Dunbar, who's somebody I wrote a paper with. Cool. So Robin does a lot of work about human group sizing. And so we wrote a paper on that and how that works with communities of practice. Oh, that's very cool. I want that paper. Please give that to me at the end. Yes, it was great to meet him. And lots of the people that I work with in organizations who aren't necessarily public figures. Hmm. Like I really enjoy people that are really passionate about what they do and are really motivated and they're just getting on with it. Just getting on with it, not not being famous, just in, in a government department somewhere kicking ass. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've met a lot of those people. And what really inspires me, what kind of keeps me motivated is giving those people opportunities and joining people up and seeing people be really kind of happy and motivated and at work or kind of moving the stuff out of the way that stops them doing that. So individuals, I would say. It's a nice call out. It's lots and lots of people. It's not just a few famous people who've written books. Actually, there's lots of lovely people who've never written a book, but are doing awesome things. Yeah, I, I agree. It's like a, an energy levels thing there for me, where if I'm in surrounded by those sort of people and talking to those sort of people all the time, it's like, yeah, I can do everything. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah. And you get this unique position sometimes as a consultant in kind of giving them permission to be who they are, Yeah, which is like getting some of the stuff out of the way that is stopping them do that or some of the perception that they have that's stopping them get up and talk about their work or, you know, really kind of... Uh, Showing them it's okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I, re- I really love doing that. Yeah. What's what's it called? It's like the outsider's privilege or something like this, right? Mm-hmm. Where you can, you can come into an organization and do things that maybe other people wouldn't be allowed to do. <laughs> like you can be a bit cheeky, you can be a bit strange. And I think those are... Yeah, words that I'd sometimes apply to myself. So cool. Okay, so let's move on. What's a community of practice and what makes a really good one? Some of the way that I describe this changes over time. First of all, I think it's worth talking about what community is. Yeah. Because I think sometimes it gets a a little bit lost when we talk about communities of practice. So it really is about the connections between people and people that connected around some kind of common purpose. And there are lots of different types of communities. But when we're talking about communities in organisations, it tends to be people who are connected, um, passionate or care about what they practice or what they do day to day. So that might be 
that they've got a particular role and they are really passionate about user research or product management or mm. uh, software engineering or wh- whatever it might be. It might be a subset of that. Uh, but it's people who are passionate about something they do and make it better through their kind of ongoing connections with each other and their ongoing interactions with each other. You've done a little work around other communities as well. You set up something in Hackney? I did. I set up A while back, I set up a forum in Hackney. And the reason that I did that is I used to live in Hackney. I really loved it. And there were a few blogs around that were quite negative <laughs> about Hackney. I'd also been involved with a couple of community action groups in Hackney. I saw that actually getting a bunch of people together that have a common purpose can be quite powerful, much more powerful than you can be as an individual. Yeah. And it can be quite positive. So with the forum, yeah, Hackney, which had a previous name, which I had to change slightly so I could get through the email bad word block filters at Hackney Council. (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering. (laughs) Um, Nice. Yeah, I I kind of wanted to put something together that kind of enhanced kind of positive nature of bringing people together and trying to create the conditions where people could make things happen. Mm. And that, again, that kind of, that carries on into my work with communities of practice and organization, because it's bringing people together that care about something for some kind of positive good. And that might be that it supports people doing their roles and it helps them feel confident, motivated, and helps them be the best that they can be. Also bringing people together that help make changes that make their lives better and make the organization better, or a number of different things. So it's really about those connections between people and the power they can have as a group. So if you have people that care about the same thing you do, then you have a shared conversation, you have shared challenges. Something immediately in common, almost. Yeah, exactly. And that's the real power of communities. If you look at communities in kind of any environment, it is that they understand what the point of the community is Hmm. and they have a shared purpose around that. And then add into that, obviously, what makes a good community is that people have a trusted and safe environment. Hmm. Is this psychological safety that we're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like being free from the negative consequences or harm really this is how i tend to think of it free from the the risk of psychological harm i think it's it's very easy to underestimate how much it can hurt to say hey i think this might be a good idea should we do this and for someone else to say no don't be stupid yeah like and that that's the opposite of what you're trying to create what kind of things do you think help create safety in those spaces honestly so i think that the foundation of any community is people getting to know each other yeah (laughs) (laughs) getting to grow empathy yeah understand each other's situations just time spent together in part i also think it's valuable as a community to talk about there's a few things one which i think is really helpful is is understanding what the boundaries of membership look like so who is you know who's going to turn up is my boss going to turn up to the next meeting and then (laughs) like judge me yeah (laughs) is not brilliant for psychological safety or you know is is somebody completely random I've never met before going to turn up or, you know, what, what does that look like? So having an understanding of the edges of that could be quite important. And that's the same for any community. Like yeah. I was in a chair of a residence association once. The residence association was open to people who lived in that building. And that's a really like clear definition. Yeah. It's nice when it's really clear like that. Yeah. <laughs> Not always the case, huh? <laughs> I mean, even then it starts to get fuzzy because it's like, is it? Is it people that live there? Is it people that own flats there? Is it people that rent there? Like, is it people that are bothered by the noise? I don't know. Was it a blog post that you'd written about opening up the the, the product community 
a bit like that and like trying to work out how you could create a space that was still safe for those people while maybe creating a second space Mm -hmm. to like let a wider group of people join in. I thought that was absolutely the right way to do it. Yeah, definitely. And I've done that before, particularly if a a community is quite new and you want to, you want to grow those connections between the, the members before throwing the doors open. One of the problems I've seen when communities try and grow too quickly, it's like if you go from naught to suddenly 150 people are involved, it's, very hard to feel like we nobody knows each other anymore yeah exactly yeah that's a real challenge speaking of someone who's in a company right now that that's grown quite quickly it changes more quickly than you realize like the the dynamics of how you all talk to each other and people obviously come and go in in different roles i also liked this idea you had of like the the different roles in a community Mm -hmm. people who are going to be your leaders and people who are going to be just on the outskirts and that that's okay i think that was a really good validating way to describe it like you know not not everyone will turn up that's fine that doesn't mean that you've not built a good community it just means different people have different needs different engagement yes and i've seen this happen a couple of times where hr take over and they say okay you're a developer therefore you are now in the developer community of practice <laughs> go forth and one particular organization i was working with kind of kind of had that everyone in the hr system has a community of practice next to their name hmm. but they're, they're not in a community because they're not. Yeah, you, you can't assign someone to a community. <laughs> it's very much like humans as resources thinking, isn't it? Like just pick them up and put them over here and ta-da, they've got another tag near their name. A community's practice inherently are informal. There's a voluntary nature to them. Hmm. And they say, oh, there's great value in that. So a quick way to grow communities is just to put people in communities. Yeah. And actually that doesn't really work. Isn't it annoying how the quick way almost never works? <laughs> <laughs> you talked a bit about this this idea of, of serendipity. And actually, I really liked this because it's it's reflected some of the things I think I've I've learned over the last four or five years of letting go of the idea of control. Like, and I think that's maybe a scary thought to some people. If my goal is to set up a community, and part of that is I have to step back and say, yeah, it's it's happening in time mm-hmm. i've made all the conditions that you can't you can't force it yeah and i think that's any organization going through some kind of transformation which really is all organizations all the time right now especially but uh, <laughs> doing a transformation program as many do there's a lot of people that want to go well you know sell me the answer yeah sell me the framework that's gonna solve all my problems and we'll just implement that and you know job done And the thing is that every situation is different because it has different people involved, you know, different environment, that kind of thing. Different history, different context, different technology. Yeah. yeah, It's it's so, so different. And even in, like, you see this with communities and same organization, communities have different cultures. Yeah. Like teams have different cultures and it's about creating the right conditions for success. There isn't like, here's the magic silver bullet that's going to solve all your problems and, and do it this way and it will work. But there are some very particular things uh, with communities that can help with those conditions or can can definitely the other way can stop communities happening. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to hear about those, like what you would recommend as better practices for setting up communities. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things is cultural. Um, definitely. Culture is everything, right? Mm-hmm. So what does culture mean to you? Let's think that in there. <laughs> A really easy oh question. <laughs> <laughs> well, Actually, one of the really important things, really you want teams experimenting, you want communities to feel like they are able to do stuff. And that goes back to the idea of permission or people feeling like they are able to do things without 
certain repercussions happening. Mm. So if you do something and you get told off for doing it, for example, and that happens over and over again, you just stop doing it. And there's a condition called learned helplessness, which is the idea that people just learn that they can't step out of their area, their bubble, they can't, like they're going to get in trouble if they try and do something different. So they just stop trying. Yeah, It's a, not a brilliant place to be. And that happens with communities. So your, your community might, you know, motivate you at work. You might be learning new things. You know, you might be fixing stuff as a group of people, fixing things for the organization. But if your managers and leaders are saying delivery trumps everything, and you cannot spend time doing anything that isn't, you know, sitting at your computer writing code, then that's a quick way to kill anything that happens outside of delivering anything. Yeah. And sometimes that isn't explicitly said, it just happens in the action. So it might be, yeah, 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 we, we, we really believe that you should spend time learning and you should spend time contributing to the organisation. But can you deliver that thing by Thursday? Yeah. Culture isn't what you say, it's what you do. It's what's rewarded and punished. And it, it actually, it annoys me and a disproportionate amount, I think, when I hear people say things about culture or their own culture that is patently false. It doesn't count unless you, you know, put your money where your mouth is and give people some time to do this sort of thing. In general, at least I think in the public sector, though, that's that's been pretty positive. Like I think when I've come in to consult in organizations and said, I think we could set up a community of practice here, I think that would help like this, this siloing that we've got. It's It's got pretty positive responses. So that's good. Oh, I want to talk about energy levels can dip once a community isn't new anymore. At the beginning, it's all exciting, but I think it, it becomes a struggle to sometimes maintain them. How do you think you help a community going through that stage where maybe there's a bit of a lull? One thing I've found, first of all, very useful is to tell people that that's normal. <laughs> because yeah. I think what happens a lot is people go, oh, everything's brilliant. People are very excited. They're like, oh, there's these people that I didn't know. And we get a chance to talk to each other. And I'm very enthused and energized by that. And then, you know, the day job takes over and this dip happens in energy. And then some people get disheartened and say, well, that's all rubbish. <laughs> it's not working. <laughs> so validating that. Also, you know, recognizing achievements that communities have or, or recognizing and valuing and rewarding input that people are giving. So there's uh, some external validation. So you sort of say, this is good, carry on. Do you, do you mean from outside the community or? Yeah, I think from, from inside and outside the community is valuable. And that kind of goes back to people feeling like they are able to get involved and aren't going to get told off for getting involved. Yeah, it's just it's just the flip side of that coin, I guess, in the same way that you're, you're trying not to punish people for, for speaking out. You're also rewarding them and saying, look, this is a good thing that you're doing, coming along and contributing, and that does help. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think the other thing is checking that it's meeting people's needs. Hmm. So I do encourage that communities retro. Yeah, I really liked this idea. I haven't seen communities of practice do that a lot. Mm -hmm. I think I've seen them do it informally, like talk about, oh, how is it going? What do we want to do? But but not like the formal retrospective. And I actually think that could be really powerful. Yeah, and I think particularly because those conversations don't always include the quiet voices. Yeah, they might not be engaging. Yeah, 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 yeah. So understanding that is useful. But also, as, as well as that, varying what the community does. So I've seen communities that say they have regular meetings, but they don't, every meeting is the same. Varying that and saying, you know, we're going to learn something new this time, or we're going to watch a talk, or we're going to dig into a problem that we've got at work. Or Yeah, yeah. I think I think shape like that can help motivate people, especially if they're like, oh, I'm interested in this bit, but not in this bit. So I'll just come along to these ones. That's fine. Yeah. And then they start to get more interested. Back to numbers as well. Like I, I speak to people and they're like, oh, you know, 
only 10 people showed up. You like 10 people showed up. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> 10 people had got like value out of spending an hour together. Like if three people show up and get value out of it, then that is a valuable session. Yeah. Culturally, we're kind of really invested in the idea of like growth and, and like amazing, huge things, right? Like, oh, my, my thing can't succeed unless it's absolutely amazing. And you're right. Like three people meeting and having a good conversation that has value i've done that this week like accidentally just ran across some people in kind of a a meeting with a slightly different agenda but we we found out we had a common challenge and talked through it and i came away from it thinking oh i'm not alone that's good yeah exactly so just a quick shout out to maytech our sponsor Maytech are software delivery experts, mainly working in the public sector. I've been working at Maytech for a few years now, and I've learned more than I did anywhere else in such a short space of time, all the while being supported by a bunch of lovely humans. You can find us on Twitter, that's at Maytech, which is M-A-D-E-T-E-C-H, and we're hiring across a number of regional offices across the UK. Go to maytech.com careers to find out more about that. Oh, we've also got some books. Head to maytech.com resources, get yourself some free books. All right, let's head back to our chat with Emily. So, yeah, I'm interested in this idea of how your organizational brain can't live in only written form. What's the right and wrong things to write down? Knowledge management is a topic that obviously has been talked about for, for many years. And interestingly enough, communities of practice traditionally have sat within knowledge management. So... The way that I tend to talk about it is explicit knowledge and tacit knowledge. Explicit knowledge is the stuff that you can write down and doesn't change very often. And tacit knowledge is more difficult to explain or it changes quickly enough. Writing it down with some kind of permanence is, is not very useful. And you know, many of us have been in organisations that have the wiki. <laughs> yeah, where knowledge goes to die. Where knowledge goes to die. <laughs> The reason that knowledge goes to die in a wiki is kind of just that. It's like if you try and write down everything that changes too often and isn't isn't particularly useful in written form, then you just have this muddy thing that's that you can't really find the information that you actually need. Yeah, you might read it and it's the person who wrote it is, is like, there we go, I've, I've written that thing down, but it doesn't work in written form. I think that's something I see a lot. So kind of on the other end of, of that, like I often hear people talk about Slack and say, well, we need to have all the Slack history searchable. It's interesting. Because <laughs> people ask the same questions again. And it's like, well, they might be asking the same question, but it's a different context and it's a different conversation. And actually, yeah. unless it's like, how do I reset my password on X system, which is something you can, you know, can write down and doesn't change, then it is relevant to ask those questions again in like today rather than, you know, two weeks ago yeah. or four months ago. I think sometimes one of them can masquerade as the other, right? Like me asking, oh, so what, what languages do we use in this organization? Well, it looks like it's got a straight answer, right? Oh, we, we use Java and C Sharp. But actually it's, it's opening up a conversation about why do we use those languages? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's easy to like go, these are questions that have been asked before when they're not actually simple things. Yeah, I can't cite where this is from but I, I think there's this idea that usually the most visited page on a wiki or an intranet is the canteen lunch menu <laughs> that's, that's that's the important information that everyone needs to know <laughs> i like that <laughs> they need to know it it's something you can write down you don't you don't need to interrogate it yeah, yeah. yeah i like that that's good 
So, so it's interesting there as well. You said like some things can be written down, but are, but are explicitly temporary. I think that that's something that struck me as like writing can be useful, even if it's not. And this is going to stay around forever. And I think for some people, they see writing and go, "Well, if I'm going to take the time to write it down, then why wouldn't I put it in the wiki?" Right? It's, it might be useful to someone at some point. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a difficult topic for sure, and one that I, I'm still working on, especially this year when I've I've found written summaries to really help me at times. I found the temptation to put them in a wiki. And there is an element as well. I know that like playbooks, everyone's writing a playbook at the moment. Yeah, everyone loves a playbook. <laughs> Get yourself a run book. <laughs> then you don't need a handover, right? You can just give them the run book. Yeah, that and a design system. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> and, and these things are great as long as they're live, or they're living and that somebody owns them. And actually that's, that is a place where communities of practice can come in because you know, if it's people that are doing a role or, or, you know, really care about a subject area, owning and updating, you know, owning what good looks like in that area kind of feeds into things like playbooks and inductions and training. Yeah. Was that something that happened with your work at gov.uk? Did the communities that were there, did they start writing guidance for things? Yeah. So the, the communities that government digital service, of which gov.uk is a part of, so the agile delivery community, which I set up, one of the things that we used to do was GDS offered service management training for the rest of government. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, different modules about, about what digital delivery means. So we took on the agile bit of that. And then instead of having one person deliver it all the time, that was something that the community owned and updated and kind of delivered in pairs, which is really great because it means that people are able to bring their own experiences, own stories and grow that training and own that training, and keep it alive. The communities at GDS also went on to own the service manual. So there's there's much more input from, from lots of different areas. But yeah, those communities really own that, you know, the guidance of how to do digital delivery across across the UK government. I'm a huge fan of the service manual and, and like the other guidance that GDS has put out. I think it, as someone who, you know, joined working on the public sector less than five years ago, it, it was really helpful to like just get all this instant context and history and like useful information. And yeah, so it's, it's really interesting to hear about like, where did that come from? <laughs> how did that come about? Because I think re- recreating those conditions and like that's something that really interests me. So we talked a little bit about serendipity and kind of trying to encourage that, like without controlling it. What kind of things do you think you can do apart from communities of practice to help get people in an organization talking to each other? This is a really hard one, I think. During the lockdown, particularly kind of lockdown one, whatever that means to anyone, wherever people are in the world, there was a lot of like scrambling to make sure you had the right tech. What are the expectations of how you work? Like just just some kind of basics in place and it's kind of only taken till you know more recently that people have started to really notice the effects of the lack of serendipity I guess Hmm. I've really seen it so I run a meetup that's online uh, and I've been running it since 2018 so I started it before pandemic what's the name of it sorry it's called agile in the ether cool following up from a, a meetup that used to run called Agile on the Bench, which was on a bench in a park. (laughs) 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 It went online. One of the things that I have noticed, and you'll see this in a lot of your work meetings, I'm sure as well, is that people now turn up to video meetings on the dot Hmm. or a couple of minutes late. So you're not bumping to people in corridors and the the types of stuff that you get from being around an office. But we don't even get that kind of pre-meeting 
chat stuff. And it's, I think it's some of it's to do with people are now have back to back video calls and it knocks out that time that maybe you used to chat about stuff because somebody was in the same room as you. And I think people are really starting to to miss it. And I think one of the reasons it's, it's hard to recreate is that it happens in those kind of unexpected places, like in the hallway mm. or like at the beginning of the meeting. Explicitly not planned. Yeah, explicitly not planned. So I think there are a number of things that you can kind of think about in the area of assisted serendipity, which is a term that I stole off of a blog post. <laughs> <laughs> like, I like it. So in the physical workspace, people used to do, people like Steve Jobs actually used to design his building so that people would bump into each other. That's right. I've just got in my in my head, it's just like a, a maze where you can't, that you literally <laughs> bump into people, like this panopticon of Apple. <laughs> well, I think in the Pixar book, there was a point where people were complaining that the toilets were so far away. It's necessary for serendipity. Don't argue. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they ended up changing that. But I mean, you mentioned earlier, like you had a chat with somebody at the beginning of a meeting or at the end of a meeting and you found out that you had a shared problem and that meant that you had a useful conversation about it. Now that's serendipity. So I think there's one question is how can you create the opportunities that fit into what's already happening? Yeah. So can can you create a bit of extra time at the beginning and the end of meetings, like, you know, short shorten your content slightly to to allow some of those conversations to happen is one thing. But there's other things that you can kind of do like in my community, which is off the back of my meetup, we do random coffee. I, I do think random coffee is brilliant for many reasons. So it's sign up to a list. I use an app called Donut. Uh, and every two weeks, it randomly pairs two people up and they spend half an hour having a chat. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So it's it's a chat about whatever, whatever you feel like. But you, you do have to opt into it, obviously. But then people just kind of, you know, chat about random stuff. You're allowed to order yourself a donut for it. <laughs> you can order yourself a donut. <laughs> okay, good. That's an important part of the process. Yeah. I was talking to somebody a couple of days ago and they said that in their team, her and another person in the team, they do the crossword together. Oh, that's nice. Isn't it nice? So they spend time together just kind of doing the crossword. It's just like a, a little ritual to encourage it, right? Like it doesn't it doesn't feel serious. Yeah. It's not like another meeting in the day that you have to do. It's just a nice habit. Yeah, exactly. So I think stuff like that is useful. I also think that show, obviously show and tells are really useful for serendipity, like uh, a way of, of you know, watching something go, oh, that, that's relevant to me or not relevant to me, whatever. But I think in this world where we're so screen focused, the, the question is how could you shorten them? So if you do things like, you know, quick week notes or quick like bullet, almost bullet pointed list of what you've been up to or trying to make video updates really, really short, yeah, I've had something like rattling around my head that at some point will become a blog post that's around like, it's kind to be brief. There's a kindness in saying, look, I, I understand that we're all super busy. And so I'm trying to give you what I know in as little as possible, like just, a, and I'm, I'm cutting out anything that isn't really, really important. And actually focusing on that is is being kind to the people around you. I think that's, again, something that I've tried to to focus on more over this last year. Yeah. Well, one thing that GDS did, there was a kind of a rule about video length. Oh, yeah. So all videos were two minutes long. So there's this one about this user of the carer's allowance showing how the new carer's allowance service at the time had made her life easier. And it was like nice. Yeah. I had a user. It was inspiring. It was two minutes long. It still had the same impact. Yeah. But just was really quick. Yeah, yeah. I think there's there's something there about sort of it can be a little bit scary i think to produce something small like especially if you spend a bit of time on it and you're like i made this little video 
And people are like, it's only two minutes long. What have you been doing all day? It's like, actually, it takes more effort to do this than mm -hmm. it does to create a five minute video, like to cut it down to its absolute best bits. It's that thing about uh, perfections achieved, not when you can't add anything else, but when you can't take anything else away. Mm -hmm. I really love your focus on the human side of work. And if you're comfortable sharing, I I'd be interested in what you need from others to work well. Yeah, and this is an interesting one as a person who works for myself <laughs> in a company by myself. Yeah, yeah, that's part of why I thought it would be interesting. <laughs> More increasingly, if I take on a piece of work, I will bring someone in with me. So increasingly, I like working with other people. And I think the reasons for that and the real value is around the, the fact that actually is, is the idea of collaboration being that you're able to build on top of each other's experiences. So you're able to bring different experiences to the table, see blind spots that you wouldn't be able to see on your own because you just don't have those experiences. So collaboration is really important as well as, as being, I think for me what I need is people being open and sharing. It's very easy to make assumptions about other people if you don't understand a bit more about them, their situation, how they work, what's going on with them, those kind of things. That's really useful. That honesty, openness and shared responsibility. Oh, so that, that, like they can take ownership over the things that you're doing together and sort of say, oh, I'll handle this bit and you know that's going to be okay. Yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that too. <laughs> and I think, I mean, working with other people is like, even the concept of talking stuff through with people is really important. Yeah. And some of that is, you know, even saying something out loud like triggers different bits of your brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know about rubber ducking? No. Oh, is that, that might be a developer thing. So the idea is that I think it was originally called rubber duck debugging. Like I think that's where it first came out. So you, you've got a problem, you can't work it out. And the classic thing is you, you stand up, you go to someone else's desk and you go, Mike, I'm having this real problem and this happens and then this happens. Oh, and then this no, I've fixed it, don't worry. You just walk off and they've never said a word to you. And the idea was that you'd put a rubber duck on your desk and talk to that instead. It's like, hey, Mr. Duck, I'm having this problem. And like, you never need to go and interrupt someone else because just talking out loud helps you. I've bought little rubber ducks for teams before. <laughs> <laughs> Although now I realize that's sending out a signal of don't talk to each other. So maybe I need to think about, uh, yeah. yeah. It's okay to talk to each other. You want to watch someone else's face. Like, are they frowning <laughs> In complete confusion, yeah. Like, why are you doing any of that? What is that? I get that a lot <laughs> when I'm explaining my mad problem to other people. I think, yeah, it's it, vocalizing stuff and having someone else just ask little probing questions sometimes. Like, oh, have you tried this? No, I hadn't thought about that at all. That's a really great point that I usually do. I'll go away and do that. Thank you very much. I just needed that one thing to get me out of my own head. Definitely. Yeah. So yeah, can you can you tell me one thing that's true about you and one thing that's untrue? Okay, so the first thing is that I was really into skateboarding when I was younger and won a few skateboarding competitions. I have a twin brother and he was really into skateboarding, so I wanted to show him up and show him that I could do it better. And I did. <laughs> that's a really elaborate story. If it's untrue, that's really clever. <laughs> and the other thing is that... My first ever TV appearance was on the 80s children's TV show Rainbow, singing, which is not something, I mean, I'm not very good at singing. That's amazing. That clip is out there, someone on YouTube, if that one's true, <laughs> which I hope you realize you revealed by, by giving that answer. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't thought about that at all, perhaps? You have to know the specific episode title to find it. I, I would. IMDb <laughs> doesn't. Yeah. Or it's not true. Uh, oh, this is a difficult one. I can see both of these being good. That's, that's, that's two very good ones. Okay. 
So what's the best thing that's happened to you this month? It could be work-related or not. So I have started pairing with a few people on work recently, and it's it's meant that I get to spend more time with some people that I really like. So it's increased by uh, being social, I think, which uh, which I think is brilliant. It's just like a hint of return to normal, even if it's uh, only the start. So wh- where can people find you if they want to talk to you? And do you have anything coming up that you want to plug? So I, I don't have anything particular to plug, I guess. I'm always up to lots of things, but I'm on Twitter at eWeber and my blog at emilyweber.co.uk. But I'm always sharing things out there you can also find my meetup of course at agile and ether.co.uk it was really lovely speaking to you thank thank you very much for coming along and spending some time with me it's, it's been a pleasure yeah thanks Carl. it's been fun and that wraps up my chat with emily weber what i really took away from this is building communities of practice is a skill not a brute fact there's challenges to building these communities. We're not always going to get it right first time, but there's help out there. And they do really have an impact, not just on delivering software, but on how healthy and happy your people, your teams, your organization are. And I really think that focus on the human side of it is important. We need each other's help. I said there was help out there. I can definitely recommend Emily's book, Building Successful Communities of Practice. There'll be a link to that in the show notes. Now it's time for Hack of the Month. Every other episode will invite someone to share a quick hack or tip that they found useful. This episode, our hack comes from Tess Barnes, who's a senior engineer here at MadeTech. So this is a tip from me about learning your tools. Whatever you use, whatever programming language, IDE, favorite library or API, spend some time getting to know it and take it for a spin. Have some quiet time thinking with it and play with it. When you're comfortable with the tool, you know where the docs are and you have some common keyboard shortcuts under your belt, the less it gets in the way when you're facing your real challenges. You know, user needs, legacy code, or that quirky infrastructure that you've just found that needs fixing. The more tools that you learn, the easier it can be to learn new ones. So I start by constructing what I want to do with a tool from scratch. And I'll use the docs rather than grabbing something ready-made from, say, Stack Overflow or another site that gives you these ready-made things. While I'm looking for that, I'll have skimmed over a bunch of other functionality and other things that I might find useful later. So when I'm looking for another solution, I could have already found and read some of this stuff before. So playing, tinkering with the tool and experimenting really help you out in the long run. For this final segment, Making Life Better, myself and my colleagues make some suggestions for small things we can do to help out, which could be helping the person next to us or a little further afield. This week is actually about looking after yourself. It's very easy to forget you need to be kind to yourself too. It's a lot harder to help other people if you're running on empty. This comes from Adam Friday, a delivery manager here at Maintech. He'd like to talk about better work-life balance. He says, draw a line between work and life. So that could be turning off notifications on Slack or email or whatever communication tool you're using for work. So people from work know you can't be contacted. Try not to engage with those tools when you finish work. It's perfectly acceptable to put your working hours on the footer of your email or in your profile so clients know when you'll be back and to not expect a reply from you until the next working day or when you're back in. So thanks to Adam for that.
Well, that's it for this episode. You can find my guest Emily Weber, me, Kyle, and our sponsor Maytech all on Twitter. Emily's at eWeber, I'm at KJD Chapman, and Maytech are at Maytech, which are all in the episode notes as well. If you've enjoyed this, we'd love a rating or a review on whatever podcast platform you're using. It really helps us to hear how we're doing, and it'll help more people find it as well. Also very happy to hear feedback by Twitter. Thank you to Rose, our editor, Gina Cady, our virtual assistant, Viv Andrews, our transcriber, Richard Murray for the music, there's a link in the description for that, and to my colleagues at MadeTech for helping out, Claire Sudbury, Jack Harrison, Carson Robb, and Lara Plaga. We publish new episodes every fortnight on a Tuesday morning. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you.